the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. From Talk 910 KNEW San Francisco, this is Rob Black. Rob talks about your money every weekday, live and local, from 10 to noon. Enjoy the show. Live from the Bay Area, your money, your life. This is Rob Black. Welcome into the Rob Black Show. I'm Rob Black. I typically talk all things financial. My goal is to get you to age 60 with enough of a nest egg so you can live from age 60 to 100 because Social Security only amounts to about $20,000 a year. That's not much. And after you pay taxes and health care on it, it's about $9,000 a year. That's the goal of the show, getting you to retirement. With that said, one of the things that I focus heavily on is the stock market and investing and 401ks and just some of the more boring things that are out there. But we also talk politics because politics influences the economy. The public option in the life uh, gets new life in the Senate, for instance. That's a big story today. We'll talk about Obama and how he's starting to push some small business initiatives. If there's one thing I hate, it's stimulus for people. If there's one thing I like, it's stimulus for small businesses. I don't even care about big business. I like small business. Big business will take care of itself, but small businesses, they need incentives to bring people ultimately into the economy and bring people into creating jobs. Housing numbers were out today. It looks like housing has stabilized. Does that mean it's done going down? No. But sideways is sometimes good. It's not necessarily sideways. It's good. It's nice to level off. Housing starts, for instance, rose one half of 1% in September. 590,000 units. Now, 590,000 units means a lot of wood, a lot of nails, a lot of hammers, a lot of people with butt cracks are out there swinging the hammer and earning a buck. Now, when those people are swinging a hammer, what do they do? They ultimately hate the boss, and they smoke a cigarette to relieve some stress. They ultimately have a beer, and they tip a waitress. They give back to the economy. They pay their mortgage. They do their their car payments. Life is good. We have an economy that needs people swinging hammers. We have an economy that has a need for that. So that's the news that's out there today. Now, talking about the public option, you've heard about this health care reform. I'm positive you have. The public option. Everyone gets free health care? No, no, no. Everyone pays for health care. It's got a lot of people freaked out. Somewhere between two and five thousand dollars a year for a single person. Somewhere between five and ten thousand dollars for a couple and a family. Do you have an extra five to ten thousand dollars? Do you have an extra two to five thousand? That's what a public option is. Now, the Wall Street Journal is doing a little bit of report on this, and for the I love the Wall Street Journal. To me, the Wall Street Journal is it's kind of like Playboy magazine to a sixteen-year-old kid. It's magic to me. What's in between the covers of Wall Street Journal? Magic. Now, the idea of creating a government-run health insurance plan once on life support, it's making a recovery amongst Democrats writing health care legislation. We got about 30 days. This should all be done by early to mid-November. So far, no one's talking about a nationwide Medicare-like plan of the sort sought by many liberals. But several variations short of a national plan, they're starting to be considered. One would establish a national plan only if other proposals in the Democrat-led health overall to expand insurance coverage. Another would create a government plan but allow states to opt out. Isn't that weird? States would be able to opt out. Republican states don't like it. We're out. 
Still another would allow states to opt into a government plan. Prospects are growing that one of these variations or a blend of them will make it into the final Senate bill. This issue is alive, and they're ultimately looking at it. I told you yesterday, if you listened to the first hour of the show, what the health care reform might look like for you. So if you missed it, you could jump on the live blog, talk910.com, talk910.com. And, well, at the live blog, you can ask me questions. But more importantly, you can talk on, jump onto the website, talk910.com, and download a podcast of yesterday's show. Now, administration officials today, they're saying Obama, President Obama is going to announce small business initiatives. He's going to announce a series of initiatives aimed at boosting credit to small businesses. Now, that's one of the areas that's still hurting. Small businesses are, are, are a drag on the economy right now in large part because they can't borrow money. A lot of small businesses, and you're saying, Rob, they shouldn't be borrowing money. But a lot of them borrow money, for instance, if it's a financial planning company. They basically get paid, and then they pay their employees. But what happens if it's um, a company that makes little computers that go into your uh, car and tell you what's wrong with it so you can diagnose it yourself instead of having to pay a technician to do it for you at, at a service station? Well, they have to buy equipment. They have to manufacture the stuff. They have to advertise it, and they have to wait for the sale to recoup their money. And sometimes they live off credit for 30 days, not 90 days, not 120 days. They're not going out and and having a rock star party. You basically get the idea. So the White House is going to move to increase the caps on existing small business administration loans. It's also going to include measures to make it easier for small banks to access funds from the Troubled Asset Relief Program. The Obama administration has struggled to figure out what to do for small businesses, and they've spent months trying to get its initial program off the ground. So far, nothing. Nothing. 800-345-5639 to get your calls in the air. It's 800-345-5639 to get your calls in the air. Now, we have to stick with this story a little bit longer. More politics. Three trade groups are lobbying the Obama administration to back an extension of that $8,000 first-time home buyer tax credit that's set to expire on November 30th. And the Mortgage Bankers Association said, quote, our fragile economy is just beginning to show signs of recovery. We should not jeopardize that recovery by letting the tax credit expire. Now, lawmakers from both parties, including Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, they're pushing for an extension of the tax credit. House and Senate panels are going to hold hearings addressing the tax credit this week. Large price tag for prolonging the tax credit is likely to put off many would-be supporters. The cost of a Senate measure to extend the tax credit, say, through June 30th, 2010, it would cost an extra $16.7 billion. That comes out of your tax money. That comes out of your unemployment tax. That comes out of your income tax, your federal tax. It hurts, right? I know it does. And you don't see it because you're going, well, I don't even, I don't, tax is a concept that's foreign to you. You know you pay it out, but where does it go? Well, there it goes, to people who are buying homes. We as a nation, we, we support our weak. We support our sick. We support uh, immigrants from other countries who, who are, are leaving in fear. We're a big, loving nation. Do we really got to give love to people buying homes? Do we? How about for the prostitutes out there who are seeing a decline in, in, in trucking business? They're, tr- they're truck stop p- prostitutes. We're not sending enough stuff nationwide, truck-wide, to c- continue to support 100 prostitutes. Why not give them $8,000 to get them by? Or how about the, the poor ladies who are born with a flat chest? Why not give free boob jobs? 
and have the government subsidize that. Suddenly, it's $16 billion in boob jobs as a subsidy pisses you off. $16 billion in a housing subsidy pisses me off. How about the people who are renting? Why don't we give renters $16 billion? I don't know. We all get the idea that we, like, we know that our government pays farmers not to grow corn and, we're, and we subsidize them. We're going to pay you for not doing something. It's offensive, right? This offends me. Now, the housing starts. This big economic data. I'm off the politics soapbox for a couple mementos. Housing starts rose one half of 1% in September to 590,000 units. And the consensus expectations may have been a little bit unrealistic. We expected them to be a little bit higher. Multifamily construction, incredibly volatile. Typically, a strong monthly increase is quickly followed by a severe drop. September, we had multifamily starts decline 15%. Whoa. Now, housing starts may not have reached bottom earlier in the year. The strong bounce back that the market's been expecting has not occurred. Starts have been bounded within a fairly narrow range of 585 to 595,000 units in the last couple months. The biggest concern last month was the drop in single-family construction. Single-family starts rebounded in September and grew by 3.9%, and it's now back to July levels. Building permits fell 1.2%. That's kind of interesting. What's a building permit? You decide you want to build a house, you go to the state, or you go to your local uh, um, city hall, and you say, I'm going to erect a building on this piece of property. And they go, okay, well, let's take a look. And, okay, you got the sewage. Sewage looks good. We got electricity there. That looks good. So we're going to give you a permit. And typically, you start building six months later. So building permits tell us about the future. They're issued months in advance, and if demand picks up, builders could rush out to obtain their permits and begin construction immediately. We've not seen a big pickup in permits. So that's telling me housing's not that great. It's okay. It's less than bad. United Health. They beat earnings expectations by 13 cents. They reported revenues in line. They've reaffirmed their 2009 earnings per share that are above consensus expectations. Now, 13 cents better than the first call consensus of 76 cents. United Health, what do they do? They basically are an HMO PPO, and that's a pretty good number. Operating margins are about 7.7%. Um, you could invest in healthcare companies. Now, right now is an interesting time to invest in a healthcare company like an HMO or PPO, United Healthcare. Right now, it's interesting because. What is healthcare going to look like next month? We don't know. So there's some question mark, question mark, question mark. We're starting to see the policy shaped. We're certainly not seeing it, it out there. Pfizer today. Pfizer, they fabricate pharmaceuticals. That's not a... Pfizer fabricates pharmaceuticals. Um, they're raising guidance. So we're consuming more drugs. That's a good sign about the economy, ladies and gentlemen. Coach. They make purses. They reported five cents better than expected. They see sequential improvement in retail in North America, and they say they're doing very well, thank you, in China. Oppenheimer's looking at Amazon.com, and they call it an outperform. They believe sales deceleration that began in 08 has bottomed, and they started to reverse in second quarter 2009. Keep in mind, we're in the fourth quarter of 2009. So they, too, other people are starting to see the economy is going in the right direction. So if we're reporting great numbers... One quarter after the recession probably ended. What's that tell you about where we're going to be a year from now? It's interesting, right? I think we got three more quarters of up. before. I mean, we got three easy quarters. Last three quarters were miserable. We showed earnings that dropped 40, 50, 60%. The next three quarters, we're going to be, those are going to be our comparisons. 
and they're going to be easy to beat. And right now, we're easily beating expectations. Caterpillar beat by 58 cents. United Airlines beat by 51 cents. Comerica beat by 43 cents. Apple beat by 40 cents. Parker Hannafin, big oil play, beat by 28 cents. Lexmark, big printer company, beat by 20 cents. BlackRock by 17. United Healthcare by 13. DuPont, big chemical player, beat by 12 cents. So corporate America is demonstrating this unique ability right now to ring out operating costs. In the process, it's also revealing just how chubby operating budgets had gotten in the credit-driven you know, recent years. Earning surprises in any form are a welcome sight, particularly since we should see a transition from cost-cutting surprises to sales-driven earning surprises. Again, it's been a good, good, good quarter for corporate America. Intel, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Google, Apple, Caterpillar. They're kind of like the A-Rods, the Alex Rodriguez's. They're having a good time, a real good time. Now, just because A-Rod hit a home run yesterday, the Yankees didn't automatically win. And just because these companies are hitting home runs doesn't mean our economy is going to actually win. you got to be smart about this. Get your calls in the air. It's 800-345-5639. It's 800-345-5639. It's Rob Black Shoe. 800-345-5639. You want to drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. Want to jump online, talk910.com. Talk910.com. We kind of have an instant message blog. You're listening to 910 AM. More stimulating talk. Two trailer park girls go round the outside, round the outside, round the outside. Two trailer park girls go round the outside. Feel free to call the show. It's 800 345 5639. It's 800 345 5639. As you are aware, I love technology, and, and as a tech analyst, I was very, very, very good. I made great sums of money. I made great sums of money for clients. One of the companies that I invested in very, very early on, very, very early on, forgot the word early, was a company called Aware and a company called Amati. Why am I telling you this? Today, I saw that Aware is going to sell their home networking and DSL technology to a company called Lantique. Now, this was way back in 1996 that I invested in a company called Aware and Amati. There's also another one, I think it was called Westel, but don't hold me to that. I think that's what it was called. Long story short, I was reading Jugs Magazine. No, I was reading a magazine called Wired. And in the teeny, tiniest, teeny, tiniest little print, Wired was cool. They hired super high-end graphic designers to put together a magazine. Now the magazine kind of stinks. But back then, they had super high-end graphic design. I was dating a graphic designer at the time, and she's like, that's cool. The layout. I mean, people wanted to work for that company. Anyway, long story short, teeny, teeny, tiny print. They said, coming soon to a modem near you, super fast internet in various DSL speeds. DSL stood for digital subscriber line. And ultimately, it was a way of using your POTS, your plain old telephone system, your copper line, and turning it into a super fast internet speed. Keep in mind, we were using 14.4, 28.8, 56K modems. And now we're downloading at gig 16 gig, 50 gig. I mean, it's pretty cool that, that what we've done in the last 10 years. But I made so much money because I was on the internet and it, su- it, it stunk. You know, if you wanted a little, a little porn, holy macro, you were there for two hours. 
If you if you want it, you know, something more than just text, bulletin boards, you'd have to wait for pages to load. That's the good old days of the internet, right? Waiting for pages to load. I don't know if you remember that. But anyway, made tons of money investing in something that I saw as a consumer problem, waiting with something that tied towards technology, making things go faster. Sometimes that's how you have to think as an investor. Do you see a problem that has a fix? Let's talk about another company out there that's intriguing to watch. A company called Netflix and Best Buy. They've announced a partnership to instantly stream movies over the internet via the latest models of Insignia Blu-ray disc players. Now, Insignia is a Best Buy exclusive brand. And Netflix announced the availability of two new Insignia Blu-ray disc players that enable Netflix members to instantly watch movies and TV episodes streamed from Netflix over the internet to their televisions. This is what we're waiting for. This is the nirvana where the internet comes to your TV and it's not web TV. It's not you're watching, not watching a YouTube video that takes up three inches by three inches of your screen on a 52 inch screen. We don't want that. We want the 52 inches to be in glorious high definition and deliverable of content. There's two plays. Oh man. There's companies that have the delivery system and there's companies that have the content. Netflix has a delivery system. Comcast has a delivery system. Phone companies have a delivery system. But who has the content? It's the GE Universals, NBC. It's the ABC who has the ESPNs and the Desperate Housewives. Supposedly there's going to be a big plane crash this year on Wisteria Lane on Desperate Housewives where the plane's going to be one of the oceanic planes from Lost. So they're cross-promoting their own shows, which is actually a pretty smart idea. With that said, they're going to get people watching Desperate Housewives who would never watch. People who watch Lost. They want to see if any of their favorite characters pop up, so to speak. Now, Citigroup initiated the North American airline sector today. I think I said enough about Netflix. Yeah, I did. I did. And there's publicly traded delivery mechanisms, publicly traded content plays. Now, Citigroup talked about airlines today. Citigroup has a bunch of brokers, and Citigroup has a bunch of analysts. The analysts at Citigroup do research. They come up with a great idea, and they publish that first and foremost to their brokers, and then second, second most to their investment advisor clients who pay for it. Third and third most to people like you. They'll even send their analysts out to CNBC to chit-chat about it. Now, what's interesting or intriguing here, if anything is, it's tied towards the airline sector, this call. Their call's pretty specific. Listen to this. And again, you may not hear the details. I see the details because I read the reports. The headline that's on CNBC is that Citigroup initiates the North American airline sector saying that they, um, there's some selective investments. They see a constructive 2010-2011 cycle. What's that? Are you talking about a two-year cycle? Maybe. They cannot ignore chronic sector underperformance. So they're not saying they really like the sector, but because the sector's been so beat up that it's become valuable, that there's a valuation that's attractive there. Now, Citigroup anticipates airlines will enter a recovery phase in 2010-2011 where sticky capacity remains disciplined during the initial industry revenue upturn and translates into unit return on revenue, on yield, on profit. And they expect an expansion phase where the industry revenue growth will be corrupted by new capacity, limiting dramatic margin upside. They like Southwest. They like JetBlue. They think Americans more of a hold. 
what's very interesting about this is they don't really like the sector and they don't really like it for the long term. But they're saying you would be stupid not to consider this a trade. I find that to be interesting research because a lot of people think you just buy a stock and sit on it forever. Like a mother hen sits on a, an egg. Do mother hens sit on eggs or do mother chickens sit on eggs? Or do mother hens raise chicklets? And are chicklets the right name for chicks? Or are those the things that hockey players lose when they throw punches? Chicklets. Their teeth. Anyway, neither here nor there. Um, Apple. Can you say glory, glory, hallelujah? I own shares of Apple. Hopefully you own shares of Apple. I own shares of Apple. Why am I saying glory, glory, hallelujah? What a quarter. They had, they typically under-promised and over-delivered. They really under-promised and over-delivered. Real good quarter out of Apple. Let me give you some of the details. Apple was able to surprise on the upside strong quarter. They drove higher gross margins. That's interesting to know. Why do you care about gross margins? Let's say that you're just the person listening to this show who's got a job. And you don't really deal with stocks and economies and financial statements. Gross margins, there comes a point when Intel, it's boring. There comes a point when Intel doesn't really matter. And all it is is about gross margins. Who cares if they sell 16.1 million chips or 16.2 million chips? Well, when your profit margins are 56% or 56.4%, suddenly you're making a hell of a lot more profit. So gross margins matter a lot more to the bigger companies. So the small cap companies and mid cap companies, their margins will be volatile based on quarterly revenue. If their quarterly revenue comes in 10% higher, their profit margins may be a lot higher. So it's tough to tell. But for big companies like Apple and Intel, when you're counting millions and millions, margins become very important. So if you're able to save one cent on a transistor or two cents on a semiconductor, suddenly your margins improve fast. So Macs, iPhones, iPods all saw surprising quarter to quarter average selling prices increased. Hold on, wait, wait, wait. They raised the prices? Yeah. Even in the difficult environment, i.e. the tough economy, customers continue to flock to Apple. What it confirms to me is that they got a proprietary competitive advantage and that customers value Apple's products greatly. I think price targets 225, 235. Keep in mind they're going to come out with a tablet PC early part of next year. It's going to be big. It's still rumored. It's not said to be the spoken word of Moses, i.e., Steve Jobs himself. But that's another product that they've never sold. Well, they've sold tablets before, but they haven't sold a tablet in the last year. So next year at this time, I'll say record numbers of Macs, record number of iPhones, record number of iPods, record number of tablets. You see how the story's unfolding? And they haven't even expanded their iPhone to other distributors in the United States. It's Rob Black Show. You can find me online at talk910.com. Talk910.com. We have a webcam where you can see the lovely and talented Heidi. If she's got acne, you'll know it first. You'll know long before her husband because this camera is one inch from her head. You can call the show, 800-345-5639. 800-345-5639. I'm doing an abbreviated show because I'm going to be a dog and pony I got to go upstairs to the dog and pony show where we meet sales and clients and clear channel bigwigs. So it's going to be an abbreviated show. So if you want to call, now's the time to do it. I ain't going to be here all day. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Best of black coming up. 
It's Rob Black Show, 800-345-5639. More stimulating talk. Far cry for the Beatles. No, I'm serious about the Beatles. Can you find me a Beatles song? Take a minute. I'll go to a call, then we'll we'll do a, a phony break, and we'll come back with the Beatles. Let's go to David in Santa Rosa. David? David? I, uh, regarding the market timing in a 457, which yep. I'm not a fan of, um, but it, it's actually a, a rookie question. If um, a person's been you know doing 10, 15 years in a 457 for mutual funds, and it, they say it takes double to recoup a loss, like, like an unrealized loss, say 20000 in a 457. Why wouldn't someone want to move a portion of that to a 457 savings account when things are doing well instead of waiting to when things go down? So you would want to move it into cash when things are glorious right. and then move it to the stock market when things are horrible. Right. And, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a fan of market timing. You know, I, I believe in just, you know, year after year into 457. but. Yeah. You know, for people who didn't move it when things were well, and now you know the S and P tanked or whatever, um, why wouldn't someone want to do it when things are going well and move it to a four five seven, not as a withdrawal, but just out of the stock market when things are doing well, and then move it back in when things are not doing well? Because people don't trust themselves, right? So fear and greed get in the way of what you're talking about. I do it like this, David. Um, I'm a multimillionaire, and I continue to invest every two weeks. Right. And I don't care if I bought high. I don't care if I bought low. I know that in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, I bought low. I don't know in the next 10 months if I bought high or low. If Obama gets, like, let's say things are going glorious right now and people are doing exactly what you say and they put all their money on the sidelines. When do you jump in? When the market's up 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, 62%? do you move it back? When do you say, whoops, I kind of blew the opportunity? Because this market rally, you know, March, February, uh, March, April, May, I knew that was going to happen. I didn't know September and October were going to happen. That kind of took me by surprise. But now we've got three more quarters of glorious ahead of us. We got through a really tough quarter and we still had decent earnings due to downsizing, not due to sales. But the next three quarters, we got trillions of dollars of stimulus coming in worldwide. And we got three quarters of easy compares. I would bet market receives that pretty well. But would I bet my life on it or my life savings? There's no chance. Right. So I hear you, though. I, it's, um, if you can capture your essence of what you're saying there, David, like, and put down 20% when everyone else is pulling money out of the 401k and then do 10% when everyone else is doubling up on their 401k, I, I, think, I think you would be on to something. Uh, but market timing doesn't really work. It's been proven. No, uh, and I've never done it. I've always just let it sit, whether it was the dot-com or whatever. It just... I mean, I, I changed my allocations, future allocations, but I never, I never sold at a loss or anything. It's funny. I rebalance my portfolio every three, six, nine months. Um, I don't change my allocations. I rebalance them. It's, it's an interesting difference in, in semantics that you and I chose there. But thanks for the call, David. I think. 800-345-5639. Let's come back from break. There we go. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Black Show. I'm Rob Black. Let's talk rock band, Beatles. Viacom Video Games' first month of sales topped those for rock band and rock band 2, but fell short of some analysts. The Beatles, they got rock band. 
It's one of those video games that you can, you know, play along with a guitar and push the right buttons as the Beatles would have pushed them. And there's the Beatles avatars, and it's kind of cool. But here's the kicker. A lot of the video game players don't even know who the Beatles are. So the rock band should be more of a phenomenon during the holiday season because video gamers, they have to have the coolest, newest game right now, but they don't know who the Beatles are. So adults, 35, 40, 45, 50, they'll buy the Beatles come Christmas time. So the data that comes out on them, it's, it's, it's odd. Now, this has been a heavily hyped and costly video game based on the music of the biggest selling rock band of all time. They sold 595,000 units in the first 25 days. Now, that's a lot bigger than the first month of sales of 2007 rock band and 2008 rock band 2. But it's well below the best launches in the music video game genre. The music video game genre, I don't quite get it. Sorry. I like running around shooting zombies. I don't like running around pushing buttons when McCartney did it. It doesn't really, you know, float my boat. But the music video game genre, it's, it's, interest, it's intriguing because it really awakened up sales. Now, like, for instance, there's going to be a DJ radio. DJ star. And what's interesting about that, they're going to sell you new hardware for it. They're going to sell you basically a turntable with buttons on it. Now, the solid but far from stellar start for the Beatles video game, it comes as the overall business continues to struggle. This is where the industry gets it wrong. It's an industry that's brutally tough to track because we track retail sales by Best Buy, by Amazon. We don't track retail sales by downloads. And a lot of people are downloading video games now. And despite the release of several high-profile titles, video game industry revenues at hardline stores fell about 1%. Now, this month's top-selling game was Halo 3, latest entry in Microsoft's best-selling series, which sold over 1.5 million units. Nintendo's Wii Sports Resort, Electronic Arts Madden NFL 10, still lagging behind last year's entry into the annual football sales. Again, it's, it's people who play Madden now, they're older. It's not a cutting-edge game. It's, it's, the audience is older. And as they get older, the economy in a recession hurts them. And they're a little bit more, let's be careful about our, our consumer discretionary money, our video game money. The launch was exactly what Beatles rock band publisher MTV Games wanted. Reactions from the industry was mixed. They saw very strong sales, some people, and some people saw disappointing. As console sales pick up around the holidays, music-themed games will pick up as well. Now, Beatles rock band will sell about 1.3 million units, ultimately, all things said and done last month. Viacom aimed its initial marketing blitz at experienced gamers, but it's planning to go after a broader audience of Beatles fans down the road. Now, the media conglomerate, Viacom, will need sales for the Beatles rock band to hold steady, if not improved, to make up for the sizable investments in the band's music rights, as well as the likenesses, which guarantee $10 million. If the game continues to sell well, Viacom will easily shell out $40 million in royalties. A previous rock band games lost money for Viacom. So it's a lost leader for them, largely because the money-losing instrument controllers that have to be packaged along with it. Now, for the Beatles game, Viacom charged a hefty 250 bucks for a limited edition version with uh, instruments. Now, the company would not be replenishing supplies in the bundle with instruments to stores. Instead, they're going to focus on selling the game disc, which carries a much larger profit margin. They're trying not to sell the hardware. Hardware's got less profit margins than software does. I found an interesting story today. Kiosks. You know, when you go to the mall and you see that, that dude or that dudette standing in a kiosk selling jewelry or selling perfume, it's a $12 billion industry. 
And a lot of people come up with these great ideas of selling stuff. And they can't really afford a store in the mall, but they can afford a a kiosk outside of the mall. It can be very, very lucrative, especially around the holidays. If you have a great product that you want to sell, stuffed animal pillows. It's not going to sell during the summer months. It's not going to sell during spring. So why not just do it during fall and winter, during the holiday months? Some people are ringing up annual sales of 125000 during the holiday season only. Now, some kiosks open just for the holidays. The hours are long. And not all operations are profitable. Keep in mind, you're dealing with the, the mall. And they want to make money. And they know that they can sell only so many kiosks before it becomes, how shall we say, unattractive. But you don't want to get into retail ownership. A kiosk might be the right way to go. Business owners typically lease their kiosks from property management companies. You might sell your own products such as stuffed animal pillows or agree to hawk items from mall operators who, you know, they want to sell other stuff uh, without dragging people in the store or make their store a little bit more aware. Hundreds of companies pitch kiosk concepts to mall owners, and not all of them actually go through. A mall kiosk you can rent typically for about $8,000 a month. Now, that's in a good year. Now you can probably get a mall kiosk for about $6,000 a month. So you're going to have to figure out there's going to be less foot traffic, but there's also going to be less rent. Now, because of the recession, some merchants are concentrating on less expensive items, making it somewhat cheaper to stock up inventory. Fewer people are actually signing leasing agreements at this point in time. But it's, it's, I was stunned to see that this is a $12 billion industry, and you can get a kiosk for about $6,000 a month. You're listening to The Rob Black Show. You can find a podcast of the show at talk910.com, talk910.com. I'll be back tomorrow morning to get best of black at this point in time. I gotta go hang with sales. Yay. <laughs> okay, miserable. You can drop me an email, robertrobblack.com, robertrobblack.com. It's the Rob Black Show, 9, 10 a.m., more stimulating talk. It's the Rob Black Show, and I'm Rob Black, talking typically all things financial. A lot of people ask if I'm ever going to get into politics, and they typically say no. One of the things I do say, though, is one day I wouldn't mind being mayor of San Carlos. And I understand that mayors have much more impact in my day-to-day life than, say, the president of the United States does as far as day-to-day. It's politics are very, very local in my mindset. And as mayor of San Carlos, I've said that I will take over the city of Belmont and put together a militia to do it. That's my joke, because people don't think mayors can say stupid things like that. Let's bring in Chuck Reed, San Jose mayor. Uh, Chuck, how are you, sir? I'm very good. One of the great things about being a talk show host is you can say almost anything you want to. Uh, Mayors have to be a little more cautious. You do have to be a little bit more cautious. Let me give a a small setup on you. Uh, You came in in 2005. You announced your plan to basically run for mayor of San Jose. There was a situation where uh, someone was pulled out of office and you jumped into office. You had a solid victory against Chavez. Um, you are beloved as a mayor, Chuck, and I've never seen that. Typically, you know, Republicans like Republicans, and they growls about Democrats, and Democrats like Democrats, and they growls about Republicans. But you seem to be beloved. Do you realize that? Well, I do have pretty good approval ratings. Uh, I have seen polling data that shows uh, very high positives and very low negatives, and I think that's a good place to be in. Now, Whether or not I'm beloved or not, uh, I think that's in the eyes of the beholder. I think it is. Um, I think it tells you that San Jose is an up-and-coming city, and people feel comfortable being there, and they feel comfortable with their management. Now, well, you... We've got a great city, and there are a lot of, a lot of good things, despite all of the bad things that we're experiencing. There are a lot of good things. 
Heidi, my producer, booked you, and I was very excited by this because I always hear that you're a, a man of the people, so to speak. You eat at the burrito shops. You go to the art museum openings. You support you know, the fast food industry. You support the arts and everything in between. Uh, that's true. Uh, I do have to represent all the people, and I view my job as, uh, first off, it's a nonpartisan office, and I think I have to be nonpartisan. And even though I'm a, a Democrat, uh, I don't mind talking to the Republicans and the Independents and the Greeners and, you know, everybody else that's out there, because I have to represent everybody. Uh, and that means all neighborhoods, all ethnic groups, all economic groups. Uh, and so it keeps me busy, because I think uh, that's the job of the mayor, is to be inclusive and try to get everybody into the solution and try to improve uh, all the neighborhoods in the city and not focus on a few. Now, Heidi, my producer, has a question for you, and she says, is it really possible to stay true to the public who elected you and not just become part of the political machine and give in to lobbyist party pressure, et cetera? If so, how and who do you feel represents the good, honest politician? Well, those forces you just outlined are, are powerful. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but I said when I got uh, elected that I was not going to let the uh, lobbyists, the special interest groups, the fixers and the wheelers, dealers that run City Hall and that has been a central part of what I've tried to do is to uh, decrease their influence here, uh, although it is very difficult. And one of the things that I tell the community when I'm out talking to the community is the special interest groups are always here. They've got paid people. They're always lobbying. They're always at the council meetings. But it is rare that the taxpayers show up. And part of my job as mayor is to try to get the taxpayers to show up, try to get them engaged so that we're aware that they're out there and paying attention to them more than once every four years when we have to run for election. But it's a huge challenge because typically folks don't show up unless they're angry. And there are a lot of stuff that's not yet anger time, but we need to get people engaged on. So I work at that, and that means I'm talking to a lot of people and trying to represent the interests of the taxpayers and the average constituent. What did you do, Chuck, before becoming mayor of San Jose? And I'm calling you Chuck, and that's, I hope that's okay. That's fine with me. Okay, good, good. Mayor Chuck. Um, what did you do before you became mayor of San Jose that made you qualified to basically lead the 10th largest city in the United States? I was on the city council six years before I became mayor. Before that, I was in private law practice for 20 years here in San Jose. I served on... Uh, I don't know, a dozen or more boards, commissions, and committees at the city level. I served on the county planning commission, the city planning commission. I was chairman of the board of the Chamber of Commerce, president of the Downtown Association, and a few other things. So I had a lot of experience uh, dating all the way back to my Air Force days and the Air Force Academy, where I academically learned about leadership and then had a real-world experience in working with and trying to become a good leader. So put it all together, I had a lot of expertise and uh, a lot of uh, skills that I could bring to the office, and that's been very helpful. It's going to sound like a silly question, but what about being mayor of San Jose overwhelmed you, or were you not ready for? The sheer volume of work and the broad, broad uh, list of issues that I had to work on that I had not really figured were part of the job. It's not the kind of thing you talk about on the campaign trail, but once you're the mayor of the 10th largest city in the country, it is a, something that is different than being a council member. It's not just uh, 10 times as many people. It requires a mind shift, I believe, in order to make that jump from council member uh, to mayor. And so the things that I had never thought about, suddenly you've got to do this. And you have to take the lead. You're the mayor, so you have to go to Washington. You have to go to Sacramento. 
if we have to uh, fire one of our appointees, the mayor's got to do that, then you've got to search for a new one. All kinds of management things that you don't really talk about, uh, the public doesn't talk about, and I wasn't really aware of the different mindset. So it's, it takes a while to make that shift, and that was the biggest surprise to me. It was just, man, there's a lot of people who need a piece of my time. You're respected for your integrity. I know Councilman Jim Reed, and he's a Republican, and you're a Democrat, and he respects that you're moderate and you reach out to the left and to the right. Um, in that sense of working together, why doesn't that happen more often? Why do you think we as a nation go, I'm a Democrat, I'm going to go down fighting as a Democrat, or I'm a Republican, I'm going to go down fighting as a Republican? Why aren't we reaching out a little bit more? We have a different opportunity at the local level than they have at the state and the national level. It's a completely different approach to to governing. So as the mayor, I, I think I have to represent everybody, even people who are in different parties. That's a philosophy I bring to the job. Uh, that's not the case in Sacramento and Washington. It is a, a team sport in both of those places. Here I can act as a, an individual trying to take care of my problems, being pragmatic. And I also know that if I don't bring everybody in, if I don't collaborate very widely, I'm, I'm not going to be successful because power is diffused and you have to motivate people to do something as opposed to tell them uh, to do something. So it's just a different approach at the local level than it is state and and national. And, of course, I, I see people who used to be at the local level. Now that they've gone to Sacramento, suddenly uh, their perspective changes. And it, it is a different working environment. I'm interested only for selfish reasons, and you could say no, and you could say I'm getting ahead of myself. But do you think you'll take your act, Chuck Reed, on a national level or on a bigger state level down the road, maybe governor, lieutenant governor, or maybe run for president down the road, or, or am I way ahead of myself? I'm not going to uh, do any of that. I'm going to run for re-election. June of 2010 is uh, my election. That's what I'm focused on. That's what I'm doing. People ask me if I'm going to run for governor, and my response is California is ungovernable. I have no interest in being the governor. And I don't think I'm cut out for Sacramento or Washington, where you pretty much have to sign up for a party team and do as you're told. You don't really get to do your own thinking as much as you do as a mayor. So I think this is a job for me, and I'm Pretty much uh, planning on going back into a private law practice when I'm done, back to my old job. San Jose is a, a shining star. You've created jobs in, in time of a recession. How are you dealing with the eco economic recession at this point in time, Mr. Reed? Well, it is pretty ugly because uh, we continue to lose uh, jobs. Even though we're creating jobs at the same time, we have the clean tech uh, industry sector that's creating jobs. We have companies that are making profits and companies that are hiring people, but Nevertheless, overall, we're still losing jobs. And so what I'm trying to do is to encourage, facilitate, promote, and encourage the clean tech sector because it is growing and has huge potential for creating a lot of jobs here as the country begins to spend a lot of money on clean technology and as the economy rebounds. I think we can capture a lot of jobs here. So that's what I'm focused on. But at the same time, the economy is dragging us down. The state of California government is dragging us down. Uh, it's difficult. We're swimming upstream, but we're still swimming. Speaking with San Jose Mayor Chuck Reed, you brought up the green vision. This is something that's been pretty unique to you. You want to create 25,000 clean tech jobs, 100,000 solar roofs. Um, you want to reduce our capital uh, per capita electricity per watt per user. These are all very noble, and yet you seem to be accomplishing these noble feats by working with companies like SunPower and SoloPower and Steon and NanoSolar and Fat Spaniel and SunWise. Are you reaching out to the business community? Is that turning the success for this? 
that is a big part of the success. It's uh, one of the things I've discovered as mayor is the vision part is the easy part. Okay. It, the implementation is tough. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.